You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Amazon offers customers a limited alert of some kind of data exposure. Facebook is back online. Shoppers and retailers prepare for Cyber Weekend. Tessa 88, the dark web data hawker, may have been identified. Cyber espionage continues. We've got a look back at Triton malware with Schneider Electric's Andy Kling. And there's been another breach in what we've curiously agreed to call an adult site. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, November 21st, 2018. Amazon has experienced a so far unspecified breach. The online retailer has emailed many customers, but not all, to say that their name and email address had been exposed due to a technical error. That email, genuine enough despite its fishy appearance, doesn't say what happened or where or why or how, but it reassures the recipients that everything's fine and there's no need to change passwords. It's interesting to note that a number of people suspected the email from Amazon might be a scam, even though some of the telltale signs of social engineering by email weren't present. There were no requests to verify your account or click here to reset your password. Perhaps this is a good sign of growing awareness of the risk of phishing. If so, good. Stay skeptical. It's also interesting to note that the incident occurred just before what's become, in the U.S. especially, but elsewhere as well, a traditional long weekend of shopping frenzy. Risks of fraud are naturally somewhat heightened at this time of year. How high the rate of fraud is might be seen in some data published by ACI Worldwide, the online payment provider. Looking at the track record, based on hundreds of millions of transactions, ACI thinks we can expect the value of retail fraud attempts to jump by 17% over what we suppose we must now call Cyber Weekend. Taking individual fraud attempts, ACI estimates that the average dollar value of each scam try will be up by 3%, specifically up to $243 per attempt. Tomorrow, Thanksgiving Day, seems likely to be worst of the long weekend, with some 1.8% of all attempted transactions being fraudulent. The comparable scam rates for Black Friday and Cyber Monday are expected to come in at 1.3% and 0.93%, respectively. We've heard and seen a lot of advice for consumers on staying cyber-safe, but it's worth remembering 
that in many respects this is an organizational challenge for businesses engaged in e-commerce. New Data Security, now a MasterCard company, so they think about this a great deal, reached out to us with a comment, High volume correlates with heightened risk. And according to New Data's Ryan Wilk, quote, Organizations need to be aware of this and make sure that their account security corresponds to the heightened threats by engaging with more robust access protocols, such as two-factor authentication and passive biometric solutions. End quote. Retailers compete, of course, but so do the crooks who target them. In the card-skimming underworld, rival gangs are struggling for mage cart supremacy on an infected e-commerce site. It's been just over a year since industrial control system security firm Dragos discovered a malware campaign designed to sabotage the safety shutdowns in a system in the Middle East. The malware, which is most often referred to as Triton or Trisis, triggered an emergency shutdown of the Schneider Electric Triconics system it had aimed to control. This inadvertent shutdown was one of the factors that led to its discovery. Since then, Schneider Electric has been remarkably transparent about the event, sharing information with researchers, colleagues, and even competitors. Andrew Kling is Director of Cybersecurity and System Architecture at Schneider Electric. In August of 2017, we had a plant that went down, meaning the safety system was tripped and the, the plant was taken to a safe state. Initially, we investigated this as a plant trip, a safety situation. Okay, what happened at the plant um, that would cause this? Fairly quickly, though, we recognized that it couldn't be explained by normal process and process control, and it caused us to look a little deeper. And, in fact, uh, we recognized that this was a cybersecurity incident. So what were some of the lessons learned? What were some of the take-homes having been through this? So for, for me personally, I am in R&D. I run an SDL, a secure development lifecycle, um, for an organization that's very large. We're a thousand engineers spread over multiple continents around the world. And we had always taken an approach of identifying in our SDL, identifying vulnerabilities, ranking those vulnerabilities using the common vulnerability scoring system, and addressing the most severe vulnerabilities and moving down that list, working through our backlog of vulnerabilities so that we address the most severe. The lesson learned that I personally took out of out of this attack was attackers don't start at the top of the list. They'll start with wherever they have their tradecraft and their preparedness. Um, and so, so vulnerabilities that existed fairly low down on that list, down in the, the CVSSs of, of uh, threes, fours, and fives, that's where they were attacking. Those are some of the techniques that they were using. And so the lesson learned was you can't only look at sort of a top-down, most severe to least severe approach, but you actually have to look at the tradecraft that's being used. You have to understand the advanced persistent threats out there, these threat groups that are out there, and the techniques that they're using so that you can devise your defenses not only in this top-down approach, but also in a very pragmatic approach that looks at the techniques that could be used against you. So is this a matter of monitoring incoming feeds of threat intelligence to know, to, to I guess, align the, the, um, the vulnerabilities with, with what's, what's actually going on out there in the real world? Yes, exactly. Um, it's 
not only entails you having a, uh, a program of understanding vulnerabilities and and the evolving nature of vulnerabilities. Somebody discovers a new zero day at an operating system or in a library. We've all we all hear about these things all the time, but also understanding where these vulnerabilities are being exploited, and it's that that exploits those exploits that require the threat intelligence that you mentioned, that require that you have a, a continuous feed. And it's not enough just to have the feed. It's not enough just to have a keyword in those feeds that you're triggering on, but you have to look at them and actually understand the nature of what's going on. And yes, this ties into motivation. It ties into geopolitical nature. It ties into what would motivate an attacker to attack your customers and your industries and your verticals. It, it takes time to understand what those motivations might be so that you know how to filter through this threat intelligence to find what actually matters to you most. Yeah, it's my impression that um, particularly in the industrial control system space, there is a strong sense of community and a lot of sharing that goes on between organizations, between researchers. Um, first of all, is is that actually the case in your experience? And and how does an event like this make its way through the community? You know, it's a great question. Uh, within days of this incident becoming public, I was on the phone with my competitors. I have colleagues um, that I know in other competitive businesses through standards committees. And like you said, it's a close community. I was briefing them very point blank. I was briefing them on what we knew about the attack how the tradecraft looked like uh, it could it definitely was attacking our product but could be applied to any kind of safety product and we were there to help them learn as much as as anybody um, and continue to to stand that posture to stand that that vision of of trying to bring this collaboration this is an industry call to action and we we firmly believe in that and we are putting our uh, our efforts behind that if the next one comes and i am ready will i know it well, I know that the attack happened and it failed. It's entirely possible that the attack happens and we completely thwart the attack and there's never any evidence that the attack happened. So it's it's very difficult to say. We need to work with everybody. This collaboration has to go horizontal through the industry, meaning we all have to work with each other. And then we also have to think about some of that vertical collaboration. How do we work with the government agencies around the world? This has been a, a real eye-opener here that you know, where we identify that there very much are silos between countries uh, when it comes to some of this. And yes, some sharing goes on. Much of that is probably hidden from somebody like myself down here at an OEM level. But we very much can can see vertical silos built in, in how we share. And so it's it's incumbent upon a vendor like myself, an OEM like myself, to, to find those silos and to communicate up through them to the government agencies that need to know. But it's also important that we start to break down some of these barriers so that there is a better way to collaborate on incidents like this. And it's collaboration that's going to help us improve our security posture. That's Andy Kling from Schneider Electric. You can read his article, One Year After Triton, Building Ongoing Industry-Wide Cyber Resilience. That's on the Schneider Electric website. Threat intelligence firm Recorded Future says it's cleared up the mystery of Tessa 88, the hitherto unidentified cybercriminal, who in 2016 sold MySpace, Badu, LinkedIn, Kip, Rambler, Vicontacte, Mabanga, and Twitter databases. The security firm has concluded that Tessa 88 is one Maxim Vladimirovich Donakov of Penza, Russia. 
Tessa 88 claimed to be a broker or middleman as opposed to a hacker. Mr. Donikoff is, as far as known, still at large, but there has recently been an indictment and extradition to the U.S. of another hood involved in the MySpace caper. Espionage in cyberspace continues at its customary tempo and customary actors. Australia, however, is thought to be seeing an increase in the attention being paid to its corporate intellectual property by China's Ministry of State Security. And observers continue mulling Cozy Bear's virtuoso return to fishing for access. Those of you in the furry community, you know who you are, but a breach in the High Tail Hall suggests that about half a million of you will eventually be known to everyone else as well. The BBC and friend of this show, Graham Cluley, seem well informed on the incident. You can safely leave us out of it. Remember to look for a redesigned daily news briefing email shortly after the Thanksgiving holiday. It's redesigned to avoid falling into spam traps or becoming inadvertently enmeshed in the array of anti-phishing measures increasingly deployed. We hope you'll find the new format more user-friendly. We'll announce the date as the rollout approaches. As always, thanks for subscribing and reading. That's one of the many things we at the CyberWire are thankful for. And remember, if you don't subscribe yet, why not sign up for the always free daily delivery this Cyber Weekend. We are, of course, observing Thanksgiving this week, so there will be no daily news briefing, daily podcast, or hacking humans on Thursday or Friday. There will also be no research Saturday or week that was this Saturday. Everything returns to normal next week. In the meantime, enjoy the holiday, and we'll see you Monday. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by David DeFore. He is the Vice President of Engineering and Cybersecurity at WebRoot, 
Uh, David, welcome back. Um, we wanted to go through and touch on some issues with open source code, kind of walk through what some of the best practices are, some of the good things and bad things when it comes to using it on your projects. So what can you share with us? Okay, first of all, great to be back, David. And, and you're right, you know, open source, I, I think a lot of folks are getting a lot more understanding about licensing and things like that. And that's really where we're going to focus. I should start out by saying, I am not a lawyer. Do not take advice from me thinking that's in some way going to protect you. But uh -huh. but the whole point here about talking about open source is really just to raise that consciousness of considerations you need to take. So what are we talking about? I'm an engineer. Everybody out there, you know, uh, that's developing software, you know, we all like to put on our pirate hats and surf the Internet and look for something that prevents us from having to write code from scratch. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you find really well professionally made products for free, but they, they are under different open source licenses. We want to use those in products that we want to develop and then potentially sell. And the trick is you need to take the time as a, as a developer and a lot of startups don't want to take this time. And I get it because I've been there to, to understand, you know, the implications of building a solution around products of different open source licenses. And I understand that there's this sort of fundamental tension because I think there's this perspective that, well, anything open source is the upsides that it's going to have a lot of eyes on it. But the downside is no one's really being paid to, to take that deeper look at it. Well, that's now that's true. That is one thing where I can I do agree that no one is taking that deep dive, looking at the code or there are vulnerabilities in there from a security perspective. And, and I understand that. And, and there are concerns there. And when we look at open source here, we want to make sure we, we've done a good vetting of whatever open source we may use. But the flip side is, and this is really for people building solutions, building products, if you take open source with a certain type of license and you build a product around that open source, your source code and your product is also there then required to be open source, meaning any code you write that is attached to certain open source licenses is by definition now open source as well. And you may be forced to give away your intellectual property. Hmm. And, and that's really the concern I have for a lot of folks with a startup or, you know, trying to get off the ground with something. You really do need to be aware of that. So you could be uh, running at maximum velocity trying to uh, ship this product. And in doing so, you add some open source code and then uh, months later, it turns out that uh, you have to reveal your code um, because you didn't take the time to, to read through the, uh, the open source agreement. That is it in a nutshell. And David, we have spent here at WebRoot many, 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 many person hours getting through, you know, d source code of different licenses and making sure we're, we're, we've addressed that because the open source community is getting, is, is really starting to pay attention to it. And I don't blame them because there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time writing really good code that's open source that they put out there for free for us to use. And they've done it out, out of the goodness of their heart. And it's not necessarily right that someone just take that and monetize it. So I agree with the, the community and the way they do it. I'm more just trying to alert people, you know, be aware that you may be on the hook for letting your intellectual property out there. No, it's a good words of wisdom. David DeFore, thanks for joining us. Hey, great being here, David. Have a great day.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.